0: I'll probably do an intro somewhere like, I mean, we did start at the bottom, Yeah, there we go. so, but I might do a little voiceover at the beginning. Okay, folks, this one is a little different. Susanna Harris is the recipient of the SAMPS Young Person of the Year Award for 2023. For the last few years, I've sponsored that award and interviewed the winners on this podcast. Susanna's already been on this podcast, which is not disqualifying, but I had a different idea this time. We both live in the San Francisco Bay Area, but had yet to meet in person. I mentioned once in a conversation that I'd gone for a long walk on her side of the bay, and she suggested the next time I was in the area, we could meet up and go for a hike. This seemed like the perfect opportunity. I suggested we go for a hike, and I would record parts of it on video, and we do an interview somewhere along the way. So this one sounds a bit different, not least of which is my huffing and puffing because the Dipsy Trail on Mount Tamalpais is way steeper than the hills on Mount Diablo where I live. Had I known, I would have asked Jimmy Chin to do the videography. Look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, here's our conversation at the top of that climb And if you're listening on your podcast app, you should also visit my substack to see the short video from the beginning parts of our trek. Um, You told me about how you got interested in science, picking up rocks, tide pools. Do you have, like, was there a teacher in high school who made an impression?
1: Yeah, actually, it's like, I'm never gonna remember her name. Yep, Mrs. Bing. Um, she taught AP bio and, uh, that's where I got interested in microbiology. I, I think like a lot of people, I was, I thought I was going to be a dolphin trainer or something. And then I thought I was gonna be a veterinarian. And I really knew I was never going to be a, a human doctor. I don't know why. Uh, and one day in AP bio, sophomore, junior year, junior year, probably, uh, we had, I think we spent a single day on microbiology on bacteria and i just was like this is the coolest thing i've ever heard about i don't really know what i would do with this i don't know i don't know what you can do with thinking it's neat but the fact that everything in the world was covered with it I, i don't remember exactly the number of days but it wouldn't take very long for the earth to just be covered with gunk if all the microbes disappeared and we wouldn't be able to eat food like everything would fall apart and the fact that. I would cared about science for so long, cared about biology and didn't realize it. I guess I, it kind of meant that uh, there wasn't, there was probably some space to play. But she was a really good really good teacher, gave us a lot of room to kind of mess around and she just trusted us to teach ourselves a lot.
0: It's not what I thought you were gonna say about <laughs> microbiology, well it's different than my experience. Yeah. Like I didn't set out to be a microbiologist, although I will say I did tell somebody this at the meeting last week, Like the thing that got me in, sort of interested in microbiology before I knew I was going to be one yeah. was The Andromeda Strain, that movie. Have you ever seen it? I, I, By Michael, I saw a
1: part, about it, part of it a long time ago.
0: Michael Crichton, the same guy who yeah. wrote Jurassic Park. Yeah. This movie came out in the 70s about a, um, a satellite that came back to Earth and it was mm-hmm. contaminated and it was, killed all the people in this town except for an old guy who was drinking squeeze he called it sterno and a baby who was crying constantly and they had to figure out like what kept these two people alive yeah. <laughs> anyway what kept them
1: alive Are you, you, i think you
0: can spoil it yeah okay so it was something about uh carbon dioxide in their bloodstream like the baby was hyperventilating and so their bloodstream i guessing was basic mm-hmm. or acidic don't check me on that <laughs> Anyway, it was the pH, and that's what kept them alive. But I remember, you know, they, they called in all these experts from all over the country to go into this underground bunker in Nevada or something. Um, but when I got into microbiology, it was the fact that you could figure out what was going on genetically by what grew or didn't grow on a plate. And I thought, huh. Like, yeah. just and, and know that these things are happening, but you will not, all you see is a colony. Mm-hmm. Did it grow or did it not on whatever?
1: It's pretty wild. I, yeah, I've done enough screens and and selections to have a lot of feelings about those plates. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a. Uh, I love that that your your origin story was like the world is ending. We have to fight it. Uh,
0: intense. It just seemed it's, cool, right? It Obviously, is cool. it it seemed cool. I enjoyed. I'm the person in the lab. It was just pure curiosity for me. Like yeah. I've told some people this, like I am not out to cure anything. I, I hope we do, yeah. but that to me, it, it's just figuring stuff out. But, it's just fun. Um,
1: how did you transition to the kind of, where oh was that?
0: Um, well, genetics was graduate school. So after undergrad, I went to Utah, that's where I did graduate school. And then when I left Utah, this is a long story. This will not all make the cut. Um, I moved to California. I got a job doing environmental testing, testing groundwater in gas stations that had leaky tanks. Uh, And then I got a job at the Livermore Lab. Then I went down to Santa Barbara to help Mike Mahan get his lab going. Then I left science I probably told you this for six years. Yeah. Taught sailing in Berkeley. (laughs) I taught at Berkeley in the marina. In the marina.
1: (laughs) I'm sure there were some students there.
0: There might have been. Well, there were some professors. Actually, a professor that my graduate school professor said, Oh, she'd go work for Jasper Ryan in Berkeley. And one day he shows up and he's on my boat. (laughs) And I taught him how to sail and we became friends. So that was cool. Um, Yeah. And then. Um, then I got a job at Varian in marketing because yeah. I could write reasonably well. And here we are.
1: Yeah. It's pretty, like, I don't know. There's all, there's, it's one way to look at it and just be like, wow, that jumped around a lot. But then also, there's, there's some through lines. There's some pretty clear
0: There are some through lines. I mean, I'm still honing in on something. <laughs> I have no idea this really I mean I just like telling stories now I mean so many people have good stories to tell right and science communication it's funny I I've been thinking about this a lot today so I want to ask you about like Mm. science communication as opposed to marketing I used to Mm. you know that which is what I nominally do Mm -hmm. but I'm starting to see the value of science communication beyond educating people about science to appreciating the importance of science, mm. what do you, do you see?
1: Yeah, kind of. Where do I, where do I draw the line between science communication, marketing? Is there a line? Doesn't matter. Um, well, I guess first, I you know, I think there's a for me there is a line between marketing and lying, right? Like that's kind of a question that a lot of times, if I'm talking to somebody who's never been interested in the space, they're like. You just lie for, no, 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 definitely not. That sounds really <laughs> awful. Um, but you know, you think about like marketing for me is you wanna sell something on eBay, you, you set it down in front of the camera and you turn it a little bit, maybe you turn on a light, maybe you turn off a light. Um, you kind of make it, you let it look its best, right? Versus lying is maybe you add something in or you change the, the color, you manipulate the photo to block out that there's a scratch. This is more about show its best side, um, And so I think, you know, marketing versus lying. Lying is when you know that you are convincing somebody of a story that's not true. Uh, And there's a fine line, but I think that if you're doing the right thing in marketing, you're, you're focusing them on the thing that you want to focus on, not obscuring the pieces that you don't or just flat out lying about it. Where I think that science communication continues onwards is encouraging basically that person to wonder what's on the other side of the object is to, to turn it around for them and show them and um, you know, tell ask them how would they turn it ask them to move the light where instead of the point being hey how cool is this lamp you should buy this lamp it's what do you think the other side of the lamp is how does light affect how we see this lamp like it's it's a lot more curiosity where with marketing you're usually selling the product and with for me i think science communication what you're selling is their interest in the product maybe not buying it but just kind of like picking it up setting it down and if they get they buy the lamp then i think they're going to be a lot more excited about it anyway
0: right i did not see you going down the road of lying (laughs) versus marketing
1: i think there's i you know but i
0: understand i think we talked about this when i interviewed on a podcast um In marketing, you're trying to help someone solve a problem, show that you have something. And in science communication, you're trying to educate them about what we know about the product and what we don't yet know, maybe. And what would be interesting about it. Um, Where I was going, so um, a year ago when I got to interview, I interviewed Peter Hotez Mm -hmm. at um, the Welch Conference. Mm -hmm. And his keynote was all about the growing anti-science movement to where people specifically he, are being attacked and have their lives threatened mm-hmm. simply for doing science and making decisions or helping you know contributing to decisions that some people didn't like mm-hmm. but there's no secret plan for world domination we're all doing our best um and so now you know i Been thinking the last few days that companies should take more of an interest in science communication beyond their own products, like Mm. just like getting behind the value of science Mm. and beyond the healthier, cleaner, safer thing, but just saying these things are cool. We like Mm. science. This is what scientists do, and here's all the things that you know, science things. As one of the guys I interviewed said. You can't go through your day without something from science that has been done in the last 50 years, Mm -mm. your phone, your GPS, Mm -hmm. your blood pressure, medicine, the list, right?
1: I mean, your windshield wipers, your windshield wipers, (laughs) the radio. Yeah. Yeah, It was just, um, a book I'm reading right now that I really like is called where good ideas come from. And I cannot remember the author's name. He's written a bunch of other stuff too. That's fantastic. Uh, but the the whole idea is, you know, what what leads to these big thoughts and these big creation moments and a lot of it is people communicating with each other and communicating about the problems as much as the solutions. Right. I think a lot of conferences or and conferences to me we feel like the marketing aspect of science where you're going out there and you're saying, look how cool this is. Like a lot of it should be communication. But yeah. um that's pretty that's a little bit heavy on the convincing part versus the conversations you have maybe in the lobby or in the in the lab or something that's supposed to be about yeah like you said well what don't we know about this this thing you usually you're up if you're up on stage you're saying this is what we know this is what we're doing you know ask questions about that but uh yeah most of, it seems like most good ideas they come from a lot of different people coming together and seeing a problem from all these different viewpoints and I think if there were more people who understood what the problems were they were so focused on explaining what the solutions are but if they understood what the problems were and why the vaccines not perfect and why we don't have a cure-all cancer treatment and you know why we can't build airplanes that land directly up and down in no atmosphere <laughs> uh, it, like then it doesn't feel like a conspiracy then it's like oh maybe I can help, maybe my random thought can be helpful. Uh, people, like, people
0: like to help. Right, yeah, I mean, this was a pretty big week, it just occurred to me, um, the first cell therapy, as I was corrected on Twitter, I wasn't corrected, somebody got corrected, it's not a CRISPR therapy, it's a CRISPR-generated cell therapy for sickle cell, yep. pretty phenomenal, yep. um, I mean, that's, if you are a biologist, Sickle cell is about the first genetic disease you learn about, mm-hmm. which I learned about, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. And now finally somebody, yeah, gotten a treatment for it. Yeah.
1: That's funny. It, it is, that is the thing that you learn really early. I guess it's just, it's a, it's a pretty easy genetics issue, right? Like we know, it's, isn't it
0: it's just one gene? Yeah, it's one gene. I think the reason it's a good educational thing is why is it still around if it's so bad but Mm -hmm. having one copy of the gene Mm -hmm. is protective against malaria Mm -hmm. (laughs) to a degree at least having Mm -hmm. two copies is really bad so um regardless
1: and i i mean that that leads into why does cancer exist right like why why would our cells mutate fairly regularly, right? We look at cancer rates as we get older, it's, it's a lot. Um, and then you think about how biology and evolution work because it's not all perfect. You know, if, if every cell did exactly what it's supposed to do and divided exactly the same way with all the right pieces, we would have one type of cell, um, if any. And so understanding one piece of biology and going, huh, something that can be a really big issue if you have two of these genes can be really advantageous in a different situation it's just uh, unlocks a lot
0: cells want to grow i mean (laughs) yep cells gonna grow every animal every organism wants to reproduce the cell wants to reproduce to a degree right with some regulation but at some point maybe um you know obviously the mechanisms are there for that to get loose yep yeah on purpose and I often wonder, this is a downer, I'll probably edit it out, but I always think like, when I think about longevity, which is an area of science, I'm all for living healthier longer. Mm -hmm. Will we discover diseases that we haven't even imagined when people can live to be 120? Yeah. And first of all, like, let's say, you know, you're gonna live to be 80. Well, whatever condition you're in, then yeah. do you wanna be like that for the next forty years? Right. So we gotta start a lot earlier <laughs> yeah. keeping people healthy to make those extra twenty or thirty yeah. worthwhile. That's true, yeah. I'll be seventy so, when
1: it starts. I'm like, do I wanna stay at this?
0: I'm I'm oh. all for I do think we should spend more effort on, you know, keeping people healthy as opposed to but it's more exciting to look for cures.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested. I, I think it brings up a good question too around, yeah, what, what new biology is gonna come out of hiding when we get to people living 120, 130. Also really fascinated to see the effects on society. I think that's where we've seen when biology or science moves really fast, it makes a big significant difference. That's usually, a lot of times the biologists and the, the biotechnologists aren't really having that many conversations. Uh, with the sociologists, right? And we don't know. We can't predict what's going to happen. So, what's going to happen when our our entire global age shifts twenty years? Right. And uh, I don't know. I'm not going to predict that. But I I agree. I think the idea of um, a lot of people are focused on health span. That's that's one of the terms, right? Yeah. Uh, how long are you healthy for? But then I also, I, long, the thing for me about longevity research or healthspan research or whatever is, I'm like, isn't most medicine
0: healthspan? Health yeah, you know, if
1: I don't have cardiac disease, if I don't have, if I'm not dealing with uh, asthma, if I'm not dealing with foot fungus, that's going to kill me or decrease my quality of life. Isn't that healthspan?
0: Right. Speaking of the sociologist um, have you heard of this guy, Peter Zihan Jihan, I think yeah, his name yeah, is, yeah. Who wrote a cheerful book called The End of the World is Just the Beginning, <laughs> just talking about demographics and the challenges that presents for countries where the older population outweighs the younger population and the problems that presents. And yet the flip side of that would be to have more and more offspring, mm. which is, you know, just kicks it down the road in a sense, like i don't i don't know the the answer to any of those things but it's just an interesting thing to realize there's way more than just staying healthy yeah to not only for your own quality of life but for whatever country you live in your national quality of life
1: definitely true i don't know i've I've, i think about this sometimes we'd love to hear your thoughts but like i can't tell what's what's more exciting or scarier the idea that we're going to constantly create new problems or that at some point we're going to be able to solve all problems like i don't know what what do you think
0: i used to think and i won't say that i don't anymore but we've been pretty good at solving problems um i don't want to rely on that (laughs) i'd like to prevent some but you know so far we've been, we've done a pretty good job. I mean, I just think it takes a lot of people thinking and arguing and figuring it out. Um, Yeah. Um, Yeah. The whole sociological thing is interesting. Um, What haven't we talked about?
1: Someone, uh, the guy I got coffee with today he's he works at the intersection of biotech and AI and he asked me this question so I'll ask it to you because I didn't have a good answer Uh, which is what can biology teach us that computers won't be able to do even when they're fully formed Our, our best AI computer that we can't even imagine today is there any is there any use to studying any other field specifically biology
0: I think it's a long ways till computers catch up to certainly the biology we don't know, let alone the biology we do know. Because I mean, we, I don't think we've, even the biology we do know isn't enough to put into a computer to tell us a lot, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I think there's so much more to be learned. That was actually what I was gonna ask you, since we were talking, we talked about um, psychedelics on the way up here. Yeah. For some reason, I'm taking an online class from Berkeley because I um, went to a lecture there, which was really interesting and talked to you mentioned somebody you knew talking about opening up the mind, which I think is just a fascinating area of research regarding psychedelics. There's so much to be learned about what actually goes on in your brain. I did go to one session at neuroscience a few weeks ago where I started to get a grasp on like how memories are formed and, like where are they and what are, is it sitting in a protein all i learned that was a takeaway is that while organisms are learning specifically animals with brains there's a lot of transcription that's going on during that moment which i didn't imagine i thought it would be more at protein level and and transmitters and whatever but there is um, actually a lot of translation going on as well. Protein translation. So the act of learning is making things happen at a really basic level in your brain. Now, where what that stuff is, I don't know. All they said was, this is happening. Huh. And that's just a peek into where to look. Yeah. But no answer there. But I think it's, that's, to me, what's exciting about the possibility of being able to study psychedelics and how um, what they're doing you know might provide a window into what goes on in your brain and how we perceive things i I don't know it you know I know less about neurobiology than I do about biochemistry, which is yeah. not an endorsement <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. so.
0: Um, you told us a little bit about your job, like, um, do you want to, um, so I watched your video for the SAMS awards, mm. should we, is mental health a topic we should yeah, talk yeah, about for talk scientists? About
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> it's mental health a topic. Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think there's this interesting dynamic that happens when you talk about mental health with scientists, I usually see kind of two reactions. People either go, wow, really important, let's talk about it, and it doesn't necessarily indicate anything about them or the people they've worked with or anything, or they go, I really don't know what that has to do with anything, you know, it's, uh, there's your job, there's your life. I haven't found any correlation between that and the type of person, but it's, uh, I think it's something that we need to be thinking about you think about as a scientist the one part of yourself that you have to be using all the time is your brain right it's how you think it's how you make rational decisions it's executive functioning it's logical reasoning for a lot there's a lot of really great scientists who uh, have other situations where some other part of their senses some part of their body doesn't it uh, doesn't function the way that most other people's does, and they, they still can do really fantastic science. Your brain has to be doing its thing. Uh, and for a lot of scientists, there's a benefit to being excruciatingly logical, and there can be a benefit to being really pessimistic. There can be a benefit to being kind of antisocial in a lot of cases. So I think science does sometimes attract really interesting, unique personalities it also attracts a lot of people who might have some level of neurosis and like on a on a technical level not just like oh they're neurotic but like dealing with neurosis dealing with kind of constant introspection constant negativity constant anxiety there's a benefit to anxiety when we want to do something big and scary you know our body kicks in we're going to run away from a mountain lion or we're going to do something in front of an entire group of people that can be helpful to have that adrenaline. But being anxious on a day-to-day level, that's not actually helpful. And, and same with, there's a huge benefit to, uh, to not being constantly going, constantly trying to find a new space to settle down, constantly redefining your existence. But when you get to the point of depression where none of that sounds interesting, you don't get joy out of anything, that's not helpful. Um, and so I think, especially for scientists, you end up with this, this area where people have these incredible minds that don't get taken care of in the same way and sometimes we just glorify these scientists that are completely isolated and might be in a lot of ways miserable or in a lot of ways making other people miserable. Uh, and maybe it works for some people but I, I, I personally just don't think it leads to the best science we know that the best science happens when a lot of people from different backgrounds are thinking about the same problem when they're communicating. And it's really hard to do that. If you are struggling with mental health and feeling like you're not good enough or feeling like you can't be your whole self.
0: Um, I was saying like science is hard. I'm wondering as you're speaking there, I'm thinking about, do we overlook it because we're looking at people who, have already had some reasonable level of achievement, Mm. and we would perceive them as being together, Mm -hmm. able to solve problems, (laughs) think about things, but maybe thinking about things is part of the problem, right? Like, as you were saying, um, and they don't get the support they need. For me, the hardest part was graduate school besides too many distractions in Utah um was not having a definitive endpoint. Like you you couldn't really you sort of know what you got it what it takes to get a PhD, but it was really hard. I, I think I still suffer from this to see like the end goal. So I was a much better scientist when I left graduate school and I worked in the lab at UC Santa Barbara, and my, the guy I worked for in Santa Barbara was my roommate in graduate school, and he asked me, what's the difference? And I said, the difference is I can leave here at any time. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I have to stay until who knows what happens. And so it was easy for me to be productive and happy, but it's a big load to look down the road five years and hope that you're going to find the thing that gets you out of there and move on to the next yep. five years of maybe something maybe similar.
1: Something. <sighs> it's true. It's true. I mean, you, you over the idea of grad school is that you're supposed to figure out something that other people haven't figured out yet, which is kind of wild. Like, it's kind of a ridiculous ask. Um, <laughs> you need to have a really right. good guess uh, and then you need to try to prove that you're wrong. And if you can't prove that you're wrong, congratulations, doctor.
0: Uh, yeah, it's a lot of persistence lot of in the persistence. face of constant,
1: yeah, constant. I mean, <laughs> failure. Yeah, the point, really. the point is to, to doubt yourself. Like the whole goal is to doubt yourself to the point where you test it and you poke it and you say, I've, I guess I must be right. I don't know. There's, I can't find any other way that I could be wrong. So I will publish this now. Um, and it's, it's a, it is kind of wild. I think one thing that stands out to me is you look at attrition rates in... PhD programs um, at different schools and a lot of schools are they're getting better at it now for, for forever you couldn't actually tell how many people started a PhD versus ended when I was at UNC they didn't track it and I and I found that out and then I would go to the different deans of different colleges and I asked them about that and they said that is impossible I will get that to you I'm sure by tomorrow and then I don't have it nobody has it I think they're doing a better job now um, but this is true in a lot of places um, some of the larger societies have tried to track these things, and they have found PhDs across the board—you uh, know, everything from mechanical sciences all the way to literature—have an average attrition rate of around 50%. Um, yeah, and that's a pretty big spread. If you look at the the biological, the hard sciences, uh, chemistry, et cetera, those have closer to like a 30%—you know, 10 to 30% attrition rate. And usually the answer is, you know, science is hard. It should be hard. You should have to struggle through it. The thing is, is that if you look at these universities, the top universities that have PhD programs, I'll just say biomedical PhD programs, and they have, uh, let's say they have nursing programs, they have medical doctor programs, they have dentistry programs. Those programs have somewhere between a three to 10% attrition rate. If it's a good medical school, they actually don't lose more than 10 people, 10% of people. Um, and at the same school, you'll have a 25% attrition rate in the biomedical PhDs. Right? I, like, I, I can't believe that science is hard is a good enough reason to be two and a half times higher as people dropping out. And I think it's, it's what you said. It's that uncertainty. It's that there's no end point. You know, you're done with your medical training three or four years in for, for the medical school. Um, grad school could be three years, could be seven, could be 10, could be infinite because you never get done.
0: Right, I mean, if you, you know, for those professional schools, there is a defined curriculum and then intern or uh, whatever goes on after that, Mm -hmm. residencies, but the curriculum is defined. So you make it through that and you might drop out for other reasons. It's too hard, it's not your thing. but yeah, they don't have that uncertainty of looking to prove something that no one else has figured out.
1: Right, right. And there's no accrediting body for PhD programs. You know, for med school, you have the AMA. Yeah. There, you have to you have to follow certain standards. You have to offer certain mental health care. Actually, is a requirement for medical schools now. Is you have to offer your students certain access to physical and mental health care. We don't even have a, a body. Wow. Uh, and so what can you expect? Everyone's doing their best. I think everybody it's everyone's in a difficult situation. Now that I've gotten to see a little bit more behind the curtain of academia, helping with um, different professors, like they've got a million and seven things to do all the time. But I think that is, that is why it's important to talk about mental health. It's important to have that conversation around that. There's, there's successful scientists and there's people with mental health issues. And that's like oftentimes the same the same person, different moments in the day, different moments in the year. Uh, I'm optimistic. I think we, PhD balance started March of 2018. So it's coming up on six years. It's looked different all the time. But, uh, you know, when we started, I think we were kind of the first group specifically on Instagram. There were other people, other places talking about this stuff. But on Instagram, we were sharing stories about graduate students or people in academia who were dealing with dealing with or who had dealt with mental health issues um, and really just a story, a story sharing place. And everyone at the time was like, this is so needed. No one's talking about this. We have to like, love this, love what you're doing. And kind of my my hopes and dreams have slowly come true that more and more often people are like, why? You know, people talk about this. Everyone knows what imposter syndrome or, or phenomenon is. Everyone knows that uh, you know, all of these mental health issues are really high in grad school. What are you, what are you guys doing? What's the <laughs> point here? Uh, and that's a, like, that's what we wanted to get. That's the future that I wanted to see. So I think the pessimism around what's the point of talking about it anymore is the sign of success that we have talked about it. And right. And it's not just a question mark.
0: Yeah. That's a, I think that's an awesome place to wrap up. I mean, the fact that that goal is sort of unachieved. I, mean, I mean, it's, it's sort of the opposite of a lot of things I see. Like a lot of the challenges in society is because let's, I'm going to bring out vaccinations. Mm. We don't think we need them because we haven't seen anybody die of whooping cough. Mm-hmm. My mom had siblings who died of whooping cough. Mm-hmm my dad had a brother die of pneumonia Mm -hmm. Um, that doesn't happen anymore so we don't think about it that's a bad thing but the fact that people think oh yeah of course we talk about mental health why do we you know hopefully they don't lose the recognition that those services are valuable and should stay in place but it's also awesome that it's common enough now that people go oh yeah there's the problem of not having access isn't something we talk about.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that more and more often we're realizing how important diversity of everything is to get goals accomplished and, you know, diversity of background, diversity of culture, diversity of how our brains work. And there was a, I think still in a lot of places, it can be scary to say I've dealt with this or I deal with this or I take medication for this. Um, But now it's actually just helpful to know where people are at or just realizing okay i've got this person i work with and they have this type of neurodivergency and so you know i maybe i shouldn't put them in this situation but man i bet they're gonna be really good at this thing i'm gonna i'm gonna ask them and and know people's skills and be able to build a team not around assuming that everybody is the monolith but rather saying everyone is different so let's have people play to their strengths right i don't know maybe i'm a little
0: too optimistic but no i think that's a good point i mean um you know most of us by definition live in the middle of the bell curve and assume that because this is how it is inside my head that that's how it is inside your head Mm -hmm. and there are plenty of people who are not in the one standard or two standard deviations that's still a lot of people there's the whippet we were talking about earlier Way now. They're so awesome. Anyway. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a good thing to know. Yeah. Cool. There it is. I hope you enjoyed that. Let me know what you think. Send an email to Chris at life science, marketing radio.com. I hope 2024 is off to a good start for you. I've got more fascinating guests coming your way. As always, if you like this content, someone you know will like it also, so please share it with them. I very much appreciate it, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.